1: It's the big interview I promised with author, artist and all-round creative genius Ryan Hughes talking about his novel XX, a novel graphic. My name is Justin Hamilton and you're about to hear me having the time of my life on Big Squid. I am going to keep this brief because this is a big interview with Ryan Hughes and there are so many fascinating ideas. I want you to enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed listening to Ryan talk. He was so generous with his time. It really is a proper honour to be able to talk to someone about their work and it's just not the type of opportunity you get often in life. Do you know what I mean? Like you enjoy someone's work how often do you get to sit opposite them and say, uh, how'd you do that? <laughs> so this was a real privilege. I had a ball with this. Uh, once you're done listening, if you could do me a favour and let him know on the socials how much you enjoyed the chat, that would be extremely appreciated. Remember, Ryan is spelled R-I-A. And and I follow him on Instagram and Twitter. So if you want to go and find him, you can find him through me. I reckon Instagram is probably the place because he puts up all sorts of art and lots of other things as well. So uh, it's kind of the perfect medium for him in a way. Uh, also, I'd love to hear what you think of the chat and his book. So please come over to Facebook and join our private page where we talk without fear of spoilers about a multitude of topics but i know there's some people who have started the book in preparation for this chat so i'd love to hear what you think about all of it because there's just so much to discuss it's just one of those books it's great i loved it uh, Also, very quick reminder, the live Big Squid Show is now locked in for May 2nd at Giant Dwarf. We're not live streaming this one, I'm afraid, so if you're keen to check it out, you'll have to come along and see us in the human flesh. The topic is, can we still enjoy it? And we'll be talking about movies, books, music, etc. and wondering if we can still enjoy certain works if we now know the artist is problematic. Should be a juicy live show, and uh, I'll let you know about the guests in the next couple of podcasts. You know what? I'll reveal to you that Richard Fiedler is going to be talking about the music of Morrissey. I hope that colours you intrigued. More news to come on that soon. Now, on a previous podcast, I reviewed XX, a novel graphic, and raved about it there, so I won't put you through the review again. I'll just give you a brief summary of the book. When a mysterious signal of extraterrestrial origin is detected, an artificial expert and his team begin to do their best to decode this message. But when they find their way into the alien realm the signal encodes, they discover that it's already occupied by ghostly entities that may have originated in our past. Have these digital memanic? Entities being created by persons unknown for such an eventuality? And are they our first line of defence in a coming war? Not for the physical world we inhabit, but for our minds. I loved the novel and I loved Talking to Ryan. A fascinating guy, a gentleman, and my favourite type of creative person. One that takes a big swing and goes for it. I think this book is a work of genius Let's bring Ryan in and you can hear me trying to keep up with this fascinating guy. I was showing your book to a friend over the weekend and where we were flicking through it and uh, he was just looking, not not quite reading it, but just kind of looking at the layer, uh, layout, etc. And it, the first question he said to me when he handed it back was, where do you even start a project like this? And I thought, well, that seems like a You hate asking someone, where do you get your ideas? But there's so much going on with your novel. Do you remember what the actual beginning of it was?
0: Um, I do. Well, um, I've told this story before, but um, it sort of illustrates the point is that I happened to come across an interview that I'd given way back probably in about 1997 or something like that where I talked about what I called narrative graphic design. In other words using a kind of broader palette of fonts and layouts to tell a story and at the time I was very much enmeshed in drawing comics and it struck me that um, comics are basically illustration with the narrative dimension added Uh, so it's it's like adding an extra dimension to... So something that essentially is two-dimensional has become three-dimensional, that third dimension being the narrative, the time. And I thought, you could you could do this so easily with graphics as well. You know, why not? I mean, the uh, we were talking earlier about record sleeves, and you get a sort of small narrative going on on a record sleeve quite often, and I would always, over the space of, say, five, eight pages of a booklet um, have a sequence of images that while they didn't tell a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, they would relate to each other in some graphic fashion. So you would have motifs that would repeat or um, if you had something happening on one page, you might work against it or have a variation on it or a callback to it on another page. And good graphic design, I think, has always done that. Um, And You quite often get design which exists over a series of posters, say, and they might come up every week. There's a different poster on a theme, but they'll all share a common language and maybe have a little conversation with you where they'll tease you with something in the first poster and then reveal a bit more in the second and so on. And so there are all these possibilities for uh, narrative effects that image and type have above and beyond what you generally get in a novel. And what you generally get in a novel is words that could be poured into any form. You know, they could be on a Kindle and reflow or in a book or... uh, they're just a series of symbols so the, the form that those symbols take is almost irrelevant you could change the text you could change the line length and it would have no effect on 99.9 percent of novels so it's just coming from a background of graphic design and comic books just seemed to be a huge wasted opportunity
1: you know the, the the first work I think I really uh, was across with of yours was the Dan Dare series with uh, Grant Morrison. Was that was that in Speakeasy? Was that the format that was in?
0: No, Speakeasy, Speakeasy was a, a sort of news and views magazine. That was in Revolver, which was um, probably uh, that was early nineties, and that magazine only lasted about seven issues and it came out because of the success of Watchmen and Dark Knight and a few other um, graphic novels that all of a sudden had shone the spotlight on quote unquote adult comics and every publisher in the world tried to jump on this bandwagon thinking there were as in, there were enormous profits to be made and the mistake that they made was instead of producing, quote-unquote, adult comics, they produced, quote-unquote, sort of adolescent comics. So they would look at something like Watchmen, and instead of seeing, as anybody with an ounce of brain um, can see, is that its innovations are to do with the formal nature of telling stories, the way that panels are arranged, the way that you duplicate panels or have sequences of panels, um, it seems that a lot of people just looked at something like Watchmen and saw Rorschach Shark breaking someone's fingers, and thought that what you do is you just have your normal adolescent comic, just with a bit of ultra violence and, and and sex, and that's what adult comics are. And I think the public, quite rightly, took one look at the sort of tranche of juvenile exploitative rubbish that. <laughs> Flooded out in the wake of things like Watchmen, and uh, and never looked at again. Looked at, looked at comics <laughs> again, and so the crash when it came was uh, was pretty spectacular. You know, there was this um, wave of material coming out, ninety percent of which was absolute rubbish, and then it all collapsed underneath the industry very quickly, and all of these new comics disappeared with very minor fanfare and then we had 10 years of dreadful derivative superhero superhero knockoff comics coming out from image of all play i mean image now is the sort of bastion of experimental creator owned work and but back in the 90s the mid to late 90s oh my god
1: yeah, they were awful. And I know they have their fans out there, but it was not for me. It's so funny that you say that because like, it, I feel like when I was a kid reading all of this stuff, I was trying, and this was before you could even talk about comic books in, in you know <laughs> mainstream society, but anyone who would know that I was reading stuff, I'd be like, no, you don't understand. This is for grown-ups. And now as a grown-up, I feel like I'm saying, you know what? This stuff's for kids. Why are they fucking with it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and there, was, there was, there was. It sounds like I've got a bit of a scorched earth policy to the quality of the comics from that period. I mean, there were standout creators and titles that ran through all of that period. But I have to say, pretty much from about ninety two, ninety three to um, when Grant started writing the X Men, I don't think I picked up very many comics at all. It was a sort of wasteland of content and style that just did not resonate with me whatsoever. I feel like there was about 10 years that were lost there. Um, I don't know whether everyone, as you say, agrees with me on that. Maybe some people look back to that period with fondness, but, um, oh, boy, it was just, yeah, gimmick after gimmick derivative character after derivative character it's
1: it's funny because the uh, i think a lot of these things come along and it seems to happen in all sorts of different fields where there's a a a piece of work or a, a piece of art that really changes an industry but invariably the lessons learned are the wrong lessons and you know like when you go back and read something like watchmen it's it's also really funny. Like I think people kind of missed the, the 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 satire of it, and as you said, suddenly mm. suddenly everyone looked like they ate too much chalk, and everything was really serious, and and it just kind of didn't go with. Well. Mm.
0: I really think that I really I really think that Alan thought that Watchmen would almost be the tombstone for superhero comics, and then people would. File it away in a drawer as a as, as job done and move on to something else. You know, he thought it was a sort of postscript at the end of, of um, a genre, rather than what actually happened. Was it a, a, it applied um, CPR to a, a genre that then leapt back into life in the most zombie-like fashion um, for another? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I
1: see. I was always uh, felt that I was really lucky that we had Vertigo, and when Karen Berger was doing all of her work there, and Mm. I I think there were even sometimes there were even uh, types of comics that you know didn't really last for long, but they were still pretty fascinating. I got to see. people's work like uh ted mckeever and uh i think that's where i first discovered pete milligan and and people like that so i feel like vertigo was my safe place for a long time and it did then it felt like the innovation trickled out a little bit from that into some of the mainstream stuff and then sort of contracted again
0: well, I think I think I think what has happened is that the, like I say, the um, outside of Marvel and DC, there is now a sustainable um, group of publishers who do really interesting work, and so Marvel and DC are no longer really the home of Vertigo type projects. In fact, I think they've they, they've kind of sidelined those kinds of i mean I certainly don't think they do create our own work anymore but uh, and so all the, all the projects that once upon a time probably would have been vertigo are now image or Dark Horse or something like that so the, so the and the material is out there, and the quality is there, and the breadth of subject matter is is broadening all the time. I just don't think that it's coming from the mainstream superhero publishers anymore who seem to be sort of digging a deeper and deeper faro into um their sort of back catalogue and reinventing the wheel I mean I say this as someone who actually is quite fond of a lot of superhero comics you know done well by writers and artists who really can pitch it perfectly um I'm quite happy to read it but um, it, they definitely have sort of retreated into yeah, what they know.
1: Yeah, you know, as, a, as an artist, I wonder how did you feel when it almost felt like, uh, for a while there, it felt like comic books were almost being storyboarded to be pitched as TV, TV or movies, and uh, that, that always – became quite frustrating for me because one of the things that I love about the art form is that you can break it down you can do all these wonderful things with it on the page and then once it kind of became looking like storyboards it 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 lost some of its magic for me
0: no I would agree and I think that a lot of comics are basically extended storyboards for film projects that someone hopes might happen but I also agree that comics are a form in and of themselves, and the best comic art writers and artists use the form. You know, the Eiseners and the Frank Millers and um, uh, Chip Kidd and people like that who. Um, so I'm not talking about Chip Kidd. Um, he's the designer. Who did Building Stories? Oh,
1: I don't know off the top of my head. Building Stories. That's not Chris Ware, is it?
0: Chris Ware, yes, of course. How did I forget Chris Ware? Um, those would not work as anything but comics because their form is... is, is It's not immediately transferable into another form. Um, and I also think that one of the downsides of comic books becoming more like... Storyboards is how little story you actually get in a regular comic these days. So, mm-hmm. I'll, you know, I'll pick up a regular 25 page comic, and it's basically the scene of the movie that you get before the titles run. Yes. You know, it's probably a tenth, if that, of, of the story that you might get in a, a movie. And you go back again to, say, early Alan Moore. Yeah. Swamp Thing issues, and it's much denser. There's much more storytelling going on, and I prefer that... I prefer that density. I think another influence that has decompressed comics, as they call it, has been manga. I mean, manga has always been much more... um, There's much more page turns per story beat in manga. Um, But I think, especially if you've grown up on English comics where you have a story that's done in, say, six pages or eight pages in 2000 AD, um, not having an entire story in 25 pages, and sometimes not even even having an entire story in a six-issue graphic novel, I think, is... Um, it's, it's not doing the form any favours, I think. You know, you're moving what should be... You know, get to the point... Don't lead us around the houses for issue after issue. Um, And it it begins to suffer from the same problems that long-running television uh, programs do. They get a bit sort of woolly and flabby and lose direction if they don't have a beginning, middle and end.
1: That's the difference between, you know, when they revamped uh, Spider-Man for The Ultimate line and they took... I think maybe 5 to 6 issues to tell his origin story and then at the same time you had Morrison and quietly retelling Superman's origin in four panels. I'd, I'd rather mm. let's let's get into it and get into all these other <laughs> ideas. We know how this all works. Uh, yeah, you know yeah. uh, getting back to your book, uh, there's so much going on, and the way that it kind of uh, bounces back and forth between all of the stories, and this ties into what we were just talking about, it reminded me a little bit stylistically like uh, Morrison's Final Crisis, which when I read that, there were all these different storylines, and you kind of were bouncing back and forth like you were uh, holding the remote control, you know, oh, let's check in here, let's check in here, let's check in here. Yeah. And- like, I think you may have uh, heard when I first reviewed it, like when, when the book turned up, I was like, holy shit, this is a behemoth, like what is happening here? But I devoured it because it felt like everything was bouncing back and forth between all these disparate stories and it's like you get a little taste of this, a little taste of that. And I was wondering uh, what the uh, inspiration for that approach was.
0: Um, you mean You mean telling the story across several...
1: Um, yeah and and bouncing back and forth so like you, I think I feel like there was only about eight pages ever, at ever at any point maybe when you meet XX it was a little bit longer but for the most part it felt like six to eight pages with each storyline and you just bounce back and forth and I, I kept cr- across all of it and it, it meant you never really felt like you were in one part of it for too long because it's like oh yeah over here
0: yeah. Well, I think that each each chapter is short because each chapter has a specific point that it's making. So the so you'll get to the point of that chapter and then it will move on either to a the next chapter featuring the same characters or to whatever is happening yeah. on the far side of the moon. And um it's it's a sort of bite-sized way of approaching the story that I think probably does come from comics in the comics tend to be short scenes that maybe lasts a page, two pages, three pages. Um, and it's just, it just seemed like an efficient way of doing it. And I think that as a graphic designer, you're always looking for the structure. You're always looking for the underpinning framework that, Happens to page to page. I mean, you know, if I look at, say, a magazine or a comic book um, and look at the graphic, look at the designed pages, in other words, the pages that aren't the actual comics, I'll be looking to see what the underlying grid is. So let's say we have three columns and the point size is seven points and it's range left and the heading comes it down, say, about three centimetres on the first page. Now, if I then turn the page and the heading is not three centimetres down, it's not three columns, it's not seven point, you know, the the heading is on the right or it's a different font randomly or the margins around the edge of the page are a completely different measure. Um, It just shows to me that someone doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, all of, that all of these choices that should be done carefully and with purpose are arbitrary, and the person making them doesn't really know what they're doing. So I think I kind of apply that to pretty much everything, is that even if I'm designing a font, I mean, a font, font is a very modular system. You know, you have a a set of... 26 letters in their upper and lower case forms, and punctuation and numerals, and various other bits and pieces. But a successful font will have a language that describes how the A is designed, but also how the Z is designed. In fact, if you looked at the Z, you might be able to design the A from the information inherent in the Z, and you might be able to design the Z from the information inherent in the A. In other words, you can look below the surface and you can understand the mathematical or graphical or semiotic rules that are at play that sort of govern the... uh, It's like seeing behind the scenes and the machine. That, that is making this thing has to be a consistent machine. Otherwise, you just feel like it's arbitrary and made up. It's a bit like you know, if, if you watch, say, a long-running TV show and they switch writers, and then all of a sudden the characters don't seem to have the inter- same internal motivation anymore. They, they might as well... They're superficially the same. They might even be played by the same people, but they're, they don't resonate anymore because you get... Intimately, that they don't have that depth of structure underpinning them. So, when I approached XX, I kind of planned it like I would a piece of graphic design. I had a, a big uh, InDesign document open and I laid the key scenes in, in the order that I needed them to happen in that document. But because it was an InDesign document, I had a degree of flexibility where if I thought a scene should happen later or earlier uh, i could move it and so um it when you look when you look at an indesign document it's too small in the thumbnail modes to actually read what you've written so what i did was on an on an extra layer in big magenta letters i wrote a three or four word summary of what happened in that chapter you know it would be like dana on moon Uh, Jack sees the 19th count for the first time or something like that. So that would be what happened in that chapter. So when I looked at the InDesign document in one go, I could pretty much see the flow of the story by just reading these massive captions. And then when I came to send the book to print, I just turned that layer off. So none none of those captions appeared in the final document. But it enabled me to see the structure it enabled me to do what graphic designers do or comic artists do when they're pacing a, a scene across a few pages. It enabled me to see the whole book as one image, all at once. Um, and when you do that, you can kind of see where the beats come. So, for example, I wrote the scene where Dana on the far side of the moon. There's a few spoilers here for people who haven't read the book, sorry. Sorry. Stick your fingers in your ears. Uh, I wrote that scene. I wrote the scene um, where f- almost at the final, in fact, I ended up by writing the final couple of chapters two or three times with about a year, over a year between them. And then I ended up by cobbling together the best bits of them. It was kind of bizarre. It was like a sort of montage technique. It was like doing the same drawing four or five times from different angles so you can see which pose works best and then picking a, this character and that character and then combining them. These are sort of comic book artist techniques. So I kind of put the the you know the, 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 the big scenes in and then I wrote the scenes between the big scenes and then I wrote the scenes between the scenes between the big scenes. And so that's how the whole book emerged. It was definitely not this. And and then what happens is that you then make a linear pass and sort of smooth it all out because you know the characters pretty well by this time. And so you can... They they speak to you in a clearer voice. Um, So you can go back and hear them talking to you in the earlier scenes that you wrote, which might not be the earlier scenes... Um, in the book, but the earlier scenes that I happened to write. So it was keeping the whole thing fluid for as long as possible. Um, That was my method. I mean, I've no idea whether that's a common method. I mean, this is all new to me. Um, This is the first. I mean, I've written books, but not novels. So I'm kind of applying tools that work for me in other domains to something (laughs) that... (laughs) I, do, I don't I have no idea whether they do apply to, but this is the way that I work, and it seems to work for me I, I I have heard that there are writers who literally start on page one and finish on page whatever, and they go to bed having no idea what their characters are going to do when they sit down in front of the computer the next morning um, I, have n- I just cannot imagine how you get anything cohesive or meaningful out of that method unless you knock it into shape by doing rewrite after rewrite afterwards. But you have to know what you're doing before you start, to some degree. You have to have room for play because ideas will occur to you as you work on a project, ideas will occur to you. So you have a conversation with the project in which the project whispers in your ear and tells you better ways to do it. So you have to allow for that. But you have to know what it is you want to say and where you want to end up and what the whole purpose of the exercise is. Because if you don't, you don't know what's extraneous and what you can leave out. Um, yeah, I, I, I possibly could have left out some of the more um, philosophical digressions in XX, but for some people, those are the bits they love the best. It's, it's. Um, I guess it's, well, what do you come to a novel for? Do you come to a novel for... Soap opera—you want to know what happens to the characters next, or do you come to a a novel to have your sense of wonder tickled and and to be taken? Somewhere where and be challenged with ideas that you maybe haven't encountered before i
1: 'm greedy, I want all of that. I want to come in, I want to be challenged, I want to think about things that i 've never thought about before i was before we started recording because i didn 't want to give away the ending i I was telling you with about six or seven pages ago, I had to put the book down and just kind of get my head around what I was reading because it was uh, such a big idea, and it was quite beautiful as well, and it was also making me feel mildly agrophobic, And that was great, you know. But, uh, but also the way you were talking about putting the book together, it sounds a little bit like uh, musicians as well, the, where they'll take a bit from this take and a bit from this take and splice them together to, uh, you know, when you listen to the final uh, cut of a song or an album, you can be quite surprised. Hang on, he recorded that bit there and then that bit there and somehow it's all move then that sounds like what you did with the ending mm. as well
0: yeah i think that, i mean i i have behind me about 14 15 versions of this novel i mean it went through probably over 20 uh versions where i printed the whole thing out using print on demand as a as a hardback object because it, the the kind of objectness the physicality of the book um it's very much to the fore so i felt like i had to have uh, something that resembled the final object as closely as possible. It couldn't really exist in a manuscript form. With, I, I would find it hard to judge whether it was working if it was just a part of A4 typewritten pages. It had to look the part. So having laid it all out and designed it in InDesign, I then printed it out using print-on-demand and sat there and read through it. And I did that 14 or 15 times. Um, I'm sure I could have done it another five, six, seven times and incrementally made it better. Um, but there, there are people who say that I should have added more of this or taken out more of that, but it is what it is and, um, uh, you know, you can endlessly tinker. Um, In fact, the paperback is coming out in August, and I admit that I have tinkered with a few minor details, just a paragraph here or an idea there, just to clarify things or, you know, an idea that I could expand on with just a few extra words. I've tweaked it. Um, uh, Also, there's, there's a sort of scene where Jack gets T-shirts printed up of, uh, of one of the few things that the uh, 19th Count and XX actually agree on is uh, how do you kill a bad idea? Oh, you such have a, a better good line. one. And in the story, Jack, one of our characters, prints this up on a T-shirt. And I've actually changed the design of the T-shirt to match the style of type in which the 19th Count and XX say this on the page it was it was just a uh, you know a final little bit of finessing that for some reason has escaped me first time around so the paperback has got a few little tweaks in it like that but they're they're very minor um, it's like adding the final highlights to the...
1: Right, right. You know, the, uh, I, I don't want to get away from the fact that I also, uh, even though it's all these big ideas and it's this uh, rollicking story, I, I love the characters as well. Like I was really into the uh, Jack, Harriet and Nixon storyline and I, I thought it was really funny at times too like there was this real for me uh, English sense of humor where as an example the first time we meet XX I, I found that to be almost horrifying and 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 confronting this this uh, all this big black angry font saying all this aggressive stuff and then <laughs> you undercut it beautifully with Harriet just sort of saying ah you know we've met this spirit and you know it's just just fucking porn, you know. And <laughs> it's such a funny moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, were there were there particular uh, uh, comedies or, or styles that were appealing to you when you were writing? It felt a little bit um, felt a little bit like uh, some of the stuff like Spaced. That kind of sense of humour, uh, not particularly joke wise, but uh, rhythm wise.
0: Mm, I do really like Spaced. I wouldn't say that Spaced informed this in any way. Um, I think you draw, you you have to sort of draw on life, basically. So you you get to a point in life where you've listened to, I don't know, how many million conversations (laughs) you've listened to? And you just draw from that, not any specific conversational character, but just the sort of general way that certain people with certain characteristics that you've imbued them with would see the world. You know, it's just, it's, it sort of comes without, well, I found that it sort of came without a great deal of, um, force. You know, I just sort of, you know, I understood the characters and their internal, um, reasons for what they do and aims and desires and all that stuff. And you just have to listen to them talk. Um, so, Harriet would have said that it, exactly that in that situation that yeah, you just have to have something happen, and then the characters react to it, and you just have to listen to how you know characters like that, if you knew them in real life, would probably react to what was happening to you. I mean one thing that uh, I was talking earlier about. Um, that sort of expansive sense of wonder that Sir Arthur C. Clarke gets in *Rendezvous with Rama* and *2001: A Space Odyssey*, and that sort of opening up to the broader, uh, the wider stage of the universe, and the sort of transformative effect that it has on mankind. And I went back and I read them as sort of homework for this book. And what struck me that I that didn't strike me when I first read them when I was fourteen or fifteen is that the characters are not very well fleshed out at all. Um, and I thought that if I was going to build, and this was always my intention, if I was going to build to this kind of um, Olaf Stapleton's Arthur C. Clarke 2001 style ending where what we we as humans and um, our future is, is transformed into this, um, well, I won't give away too many spoilers. Um, I think it resonates so much more if you can ground it in people that you've lived with for enough of the book to feel more solidly what they would be feeling if that, this was happening to them. So, you know, if you, if you, going back and reading 2001 A Space Odyssey, you don't really feel... Um, I think it's Dave Bowman, isn't it, who sort of goes through the Stargate. You know, if, if you had to write down Dave Bowman's character and um, background, uh, you know, on a sheet of paper, I, I would be hard-pressed to sort of say anything other than sort of NASA astronaut... Yeah. He's a bit of a cipher, um, which is not to say that you should go in the opposite direction and have every character in your story or your science fiction movie as this kind of gruff, irascible oaf who argues with every other character yeah. in your film. Um, you know, I, I was rewatching watching um, oh, yeah. Prometheus... And I just think these are supposed to be professional people on a professional mission, and they're behaving as if they're sort of a bunch of truckers hanging out at a truck stop who don't really get on. Uh, And it's a tired cliché that you can sort of add character by introducing character dynamics that are basically people shouting and disagreeing and arguing with each other. And what I wanted was to have my main characters. I wanted them all to be people who you might be friends with in real life. Even if you weren't exactly like them, there might be someone like them on the periphery of your friendship circle. So there was no one there who was sort of this... uh, Exaggerated evil villain or stereotype or anything like that. They were there. I hope they all came, they all felt reasonably real and they weren't just um, mouthpieces for an idea or. um, Well, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Because also you find that, you know, you've got the people in NASA who are getting in touch with uh, Jack and and those friendships there feel real and even kind of get used against them, you know, especially towards the end when Jack has his plan. He knows yeah. his friends to such an extent how to appeal to aspects of him. And also, uh, like, Dana is the opposite of Dave Bowman, isn't she? Like, she's a she's a real kind of person that you can get behind. And once you introduce her dynamic to some of our other characters, she really starts to pop as well. So that's a, I think that's what makes her... Mm journey. I'm trying to speak obliquely for people who haven't read the book, but that's what makes her journey so fascinating. <laughs> because it's almost a point as well where there was a part of the storyline where you went, and that's the final scene. And then the rest of it with the with with Dana does feel a little bit like entering the monolith. It's like and now enjoy this ride and you're like holy shit but i don't think you would have enjoyed it as much if you hadn't been able to know her and then watch her change through all of those events while still maintaining uh, a central core to her character
0: that third part which is the book is divided into three parts and the first two are pretty much equal in length and then there's a much shorter third part the Pretty much the entire edifice of the first two parts was constructed in order to support <laughs> that shorter third part where I get transcendental yeah. on the reader's ass. And, uh, uh, and that was always my intention, is that the... Going back to 2001 and Rendezvous with Rama, they, they end on cliffhangers, yeah. pretty much. Uh, you have this sort of door open to this broader stage, as I said. And then the book's end, just as you're about to step through and be and find what wonders lie beyond. So with Run over with Rama, um, the craft that they've explored, albeit briefly, um, leaves the solar system, and you're just left with this uh, wondrous idea that um, there are other civilizations out there and will we finally meet them? And, of course, in the sequels, which are... Yeah, follow the law right. of diminishing returns. You do. Um and I read um I'd never read it. But I'd read um the first couple of sequels to two thousand and one, which I think Arthur C. Clarke himself wrote, but the one I'd never read was three thousand and one right. The Final Odyssey, which I'm I'm not sure whether he wrote it entirely or whether it was one of those he- co authored jobs. But the po-
1: Yeah, I've I've read three thousand and one a long time ago, and I think that's I think that's definitely him by himself
0: yeah and i I don't think that he sustains that sense of revelation that you need to and he almost sort of as almost as a sort of um aside explained where the monoliths came from and who had put them there and it was just told through the omniscient narrator's voice in Mm. a short chapter and i thought that is the that's the part that we have been waiting to find out. If we were astronauts going out into the universe and we knew that there were monoliths out there, and we knew that they had some purpose, but it was opaque and we didn't really know what the mechanism was. That's where you go with that story. You have these slow revelations. You open your, or you, well, you don't open your mystery box to so the sort of, J.J. Abrams' idea of the sort of mysteries within the mysteries. And the the structure of the later 2001 A Space Odyssey books, it it becomes more about the sort of what's happening on Earth and the the characters leading their somewhat anodyne lives. And he loses sight of of what made... um, these novels appealing in the first place, in in my opinion. And I think that you could always argue that the solution to the mystery is generally going to be inferior to the mystery itself. And what you're actually responding to is this mystery. And you cannot ever give a solution that will appear that will um satisfy everyone. But one thing I wanted to do with that finale of XX was I really wanted to give it a go. I wanted to to write something like 2001 or Rendezvous with Rama and not all end on that cliffhanger, but to not only take it as far as I could go, but even further. So I would not end the book until the heat death of the universe was upon us. And that, that is, in actual fact, what I did. There's another spoiler. So, um, yeah, so we, we open with the digital signal... Which at the beginning of the book is a mystery. And then we end with the digital signal again in the full knowledge of what that signal now encodes, the enormity of what that signal now encodes. So the book itself has that sort of mirror of of beginning and end. Again, it's a sort of graphic design callback, if you like. Uh, So visually, the the beginning and the end of the book. um, Yeah match if you like you could even bring those two signals round the back in a horseshoe to meet if you like and that would sort of give you your cyclical well i feel like evolution. you nailed
1: it because i had a mild panic attack with seven pages to go so i feel like you really got there <laughs> you know we haven't uh, i don't want to keep you for for too long but yeah. we haven't even gotten to one of the parts of the book that i really loved was the tale of the celestial mechanic and i feel like the uh that the main character there is really uh, well realised as well. And w- when you were writing that, did that ever feel like, geez, you know, this this could have been a 300-page story by itself?
0: Um, yes. I. Well, again, I kind of knew where I wanted to go with that. And, I, again, without giving too much away, it's, it's a kind of um, – it's a mirror to the rest of the book in various ways. And so – um, the, the characters that you get in the main narrative are echoed in the characters in Ascension. And I, I sort of explain this conceit in two ways. Um, the Ascension story is an eight-part novelette designed like an old pulp novel. So imagine something that Jack Vance might have written in the mid to late 60s, for example. Uh, and it's got um, illustrations and chapter headings and fake um, paperback reissue covers that are printed on the end papers of the book. So I came up with this entire um history for this sort of lost novelette, if you like. Now in the novel you read this between the point where you, you where Dana meets the man on the moon, again a spoiler, and you lose contact with her, and the point at which you re- yeah. the reader regains contact with her. So on, one, on the one hand, you could understand this novelette as a sort of a bleak description of what's happened to her or the story that the alien on the moon has told her, um, just told through this format. And then I, I kind of have a second bite at that because later on she says uh, that it reminds her of this story that she's read and so you get a bit of background about Herschel Teague, who's supposed to be the author of this fictional novelette. And he basically is a kind of... Um, uh, um, yeah. Ron Hubbard sort of uh, <laughs> 60s guru type of guy who ended up believing that he was actually channeling his novels from some alien intelligence. So, And he then went mad, and, and um, you sort of find out briefly uh what happened to this uh, author um but he basically went off and started this kind of quote-unquote <laughs> self-improvement cult so he he ended up by believing yeah. in his own fiction if you like so another possibility is that maybe he he somehow was channeling some story from outer space and we thought he was mad but actually (laughs) this was honestly what was happening to him and now dana realizes that this story was somehow this weird guy in contact with this this alien and telling the alien story so I, i i kind of had it both ways i didn't i didn't sort of you don't need to resolve it one way or the other for the purposes of the of the story but um it works in both ways. Um, in that section in the book again um, speaking structurally you know it occurs uh, you know the, the reason it happens when it happens is is because structurally of the, of the storytelling purpose that it, it fulfills
1: it's uh it's fascinating because the the, the structure of the story as you have put it out is exactly what happens but there are all these uh parts to it where you can you can kind of buy into what you want to believe right
0: well one of the main themes of the story is Um, narrative and stories within stories and you could argue that the demon, the digital mimetic entities, which are the zeitgeist the spirits of the times that they come from, the 19th Count Girl 21, XX and we it's intimated that there are an infinite number of these characters sort of stretching back um, throughout our history Um, now um, they they have no existence before Jack manages to... Uh, create the Oxbow, and within which they can yeah. self-coalesce and give themselves some kind of sense of location and identity for the first time. Prior to that, they were works of fiction. So you get to read Horace Walpole's letters to uh, his sort of friends in the theatre, where he basically concocts the Comte de Saint Germain as a sort of fictitious entity that is then brought to life by various means. So these, and um, and again, you get the letter from Giovanni Calla, where he talks about. About the futurist projects to build the man machine, you know, the, the modernist idea of the robot. And we know through art, we are going to create the artificial man. And obviously, they think they can do this through painting and poetry, um, and in the end, give up because they think they failed. But what has happened is that XX has been created as a set of ideas, as a memeplex that exists in culture. Um, and in the sort of shared culture that we all um, speak of and hear and listen and, and what have you, and that is what finally coalesces in the Oxbow and um, is 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 birthed, if you like, when um, Jack and his friends at intelligentsia finally crank up their three D printer and, and and see what it is that they have in in, in there. Um, but but again, these sort of background letters and. Um, uh, email exchanges and old magazine. Articles and things like that. They all, each and every one serves a very specific purpose, which is to give you uh, a bit of information about where these characters come from, who they are, um, why they are. And the only character who doesn't get a sort of quote unquote origin story is Girl 21. And the reason for that was because I thought that she was the kind of digital native. And so she didn't exist in a pre digital form. She was. Um, almost self-created by every um, selfie snapshot that every teenage girl has ever taken trying to look like Kim Kardashian, for example. She's described as having a million borrowed faces. So in order to animate herself, she's like a kind of internet flick book of... um, yeah, of, of, of selfies that she's stolen from the internet. So she's kind of the epitome and the s- summation of of uh, of that that will to be that is um, expressed in 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 every perfected. Screen grab selfie that every teenage oh, girl. Oh yeah, girl twenty insulin. one was
1: the uh, character that I could picture the best in a different format, like in TV or a movie, and I could imagine. Uh, it almost felt like remember the. Uh, the I think they were all the rage in the nineties, where you could get a composite of Yoda made up of Yodas, <laughs> except she was.
0: I do. Yes. Yes. And each screen had been given a different uh, grayscale value so that when you stepped away, they were like pixels within a bigger image.
1: Except this was with, you know, as you said, with all these different selfies, but you were creating this one character. She's a really fun character as well, as is the is the count. And, and even XX, you know, as I said, the first time I'm reading XX, I'm like, and the you know, the three D printing's happening, it's like, fuck, what have they found? What are they doing here? And then eventually I really liked XX as well, as, as soon as he came into the context of the other two. What I
0: thought was is that there were two I mean, XX is modernism personified. And so the twentieth century, which is the XX of the title, and also again I kind of play with the graphics of XX. So um sort of in in one of XX's sort of exits, um Harriet mistakes the two X's as kisses, for example, or the crosses on the face of a dead person. So I, I play with all of these different graphic meanings that two X's can have. The unknown unknown is another one. But, um, Yes, you were speaking earlier about how when he talks, it's this kind of bombastic, Marinetti, declarative... Um, if you've ever read The Futurist Manifesto, it borrows enormously from those sort of um, early Italian modernist art movements where they were celebrating, uh, you know, car crashes and speed and, um, uh, you know, they, was, they, they were like sort of J.G. Ballard right. punks of, of the early... Uh, you know of the Italian art world Um, uh, so I recommend you go and read a lot of that stuff because I borrowed a lot of it for sort of XX's um, sort of shouty declarative tone um, but of course, the nineteenth count is the opposite. He's he's a he's a sort of man of breeding, an aristocratic gentleman of um, privilege. So he considers the XX to be brash and vulgar by comparison. So um, when they're having conversations, I would sort of intersperse. The two of them. So there's, there's there's a point where they're almost having an argument and they're shouting over the top of each other. So you get the, the different fonts. I should mention that each of these characters on the page has a different set of fonts, a tone of voice expressed through the typefaces that I'm using. And so when they're disagreeing with each other, these are overla- overlapping each other and shouting each other down. And then when Girl 21 appears, um, they're, they're in tweet rectangles. She speaks very concisely in, in tweets. Um, so the, the manner in which these characters express themselves is very much indicative of the age that they come from. Um, I mean, the 20th century, obviously... Covers a lot of ground, as does the 19th. So you have to pick certain aspects of it in order to sum it up, if you like. But um, yes, XX was, uh, if you imagine, say, a Wyndham Lewis sort of cubit or vorticist self portrait crossed with um, sort of dazzle ship uh, <laughs> naval livery. Um, so he's like this sort of big mechanical beer moth of a. Of a machine, he is the man machine. He's the the futurist um, projects to build the artificial art man th- um, through sort of poetry and performance. You know, he's that.
1: Yeah. It feels like he's constantly flexing every time he speaks.
0: Yes, but I also wanted to sort of play him with a certain degree of humour. So, you know, he is the machinery of war. You know, he is the sort of exterminating power of the atomic bomb. But he's also treated with quite a lot of disdain by the 19th Count and Girl 21, who just do not have any truck with his, um, you know, his bombastic poetry declaring war to be the hygiene of the world. And the only sculptures worth putting in art galleries are the sculptures that our ammunition makes in the fallen bodies of our enemies.
1: Well, that's where Harriet came in beautifully when we first met him and just went, oh, here we go. Old mate here. What's happening? <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now I use Harriet to sort of undercut some of the more... Um, you know, hyper-masculine aspects of, of yeah, execs, it's so good. The,
1: uh, the the the, uh, the few more questions for you, uh, but um, your your comment on the on the internet and the the idea of aliens not understanding how we don't have like a second brain to filter out bad ideas was. S- that was one of my favourite uh, ideas within the book. And w- was that based on uh, anything in uh, biology or was that w- – where did you come up with that? I know that's kind of a slightly boring question, but it was such a fascinating idea to have something that could just filter out all those bad thoughts and leave you with the good ones.
0: Yeah, it's not a boring question. Um, where did that come from? That's a – I honestly don't know. Um, I mean, the character of the celestial mechanic in um, uh, the Ascension story within the story also has two brains. And I use him because... Because communication is one of the main themes of the story and I didn't want to... Um, I wanted to make alien or communicating with aliens be as alien as it possibly could be. And one of the things that really annoys me is when everyone in, say, Star Trek or Star Wars speaks English, unless you're watching the French version in which it's all dubbed into French, for example. But um, it's not just the language that they speak. And you can get around this by saying, well, we have a Babel fish, we have a universal translator. But language is so much more than just what we say. It's uh, it's 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 body language. It's tone of voice. It's uh, the way we move our arms around when we talk. It's all of these things. And so if we did try to communicate with an alien, we would have to somehow work our way through all these different levels of communication and language. So the when the alien is trying to figure out um, what Dana is, he doesn't know that her spacesuit
1: yeah.
0: is not her. He th- assumes it's some kind of exoskeleton, and that within this exoskeleton is this creature, and within this creature is another creature. That's basically her tongue in her mouth. So within this... Uh, Within the human being, he, he thinks the human being is like an exoskeleton or a, um, you know, a suit of some kind within which yeah. this kind of like little creature that looks like a human tongue lives, and it looks out through the mouth. So, if you were confronting aliens for the first time, one thing I want, one I thought one of the best ways of doing this would be to. Emphasize the alienness of the human body as it would appear to somebody or something that had never encountered us before. And I thought that would be a good way to illustrate this, um, this idea that even the body that we inhabit, if you think about it the right way, you can you can get yourself into the kind of frame of mind where you're sort of looking at a human body or a human person or human communication. And, and suddenly realise how weird the whole thing is. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to sort of bounce us out of the groove of familiarity and somehow hold up a mirror, an alien mirror, um, in order to sort of see us afresh. But um, back to your original question about the two brains, I thought that if a, a more advanced um, civilization or uh, race um, had had to deal with really bad ideas on a regular basis, like we have to deal with the coronavirus or other pandemics that affect us. Uh, we sort of, you know, you develop an immune system. So you can you can deal with these, these invaders. And I thought, well, what would be the idea version of an immune system? It would be like a kind of wet room, or sorry, not a wet room, but a kind of test room where basically you can tinker with ideas and entertain ideas in this part of your brain. But if they end up by being infectious or dangerous, you can then just flush that part of your brain and it doesn't get um, incorporated into the, the real part of you. It's a bit like sort of having... Uh, you know, a backup of yourself on a hard drive somewhere. And if you corrupt the file that you happen to be working on today, you just bin that and reload your backup, if, if, as, as a computer analogy. And I thought that that is the defence that people would have against bad ideas. So the fact that we as human beings are so um, easily infected with everything from QAnon to uh, you know far left uh, conspiracy theories about uh, you know secret cabals of Illuminati running the world to uh, sort of Alex Jones style info war conspiracy theories about um, false flag operations and the fact that uh, you know the Apollo. Uh, missions yeah. were all faked by Kubrick <laughs> in a studio somewhere. So we've come full circle to Kubrick in 2001 here. The way that these ideas gain so much traction in, in our world and can lead to real-world consequences, everything from the capital riots to people not having their COVID vaccinations, you could argue, have um, a kind of conspiratorial um, Aspects to the way that the, this information and disinformation spreads is that I think that I, I, well, I read an article in, um, I think it was the Washington Post or the New York Times a few weeks ago, where basically the gist of this article was is that it's not the Internet that is, that's at fault. It's not our media that's at fault. It's not Twitter and Instagram that it's, it's at fault. It's just that we as human beings have got to get used to living in a world in which there is a lot of disinformation. We have got to basically build up mimetic antibodies so that we are, that, we, that bad ideas do not infect and hijack our brains so easily. Which is not to say that we believe nothing or not to believe. Believe is the wrong word. Uh, it's not to say that we are suspicious of everything. And we deny that there is ever a truth out there to be found at all in a kind of weird postmodern way. I'm not advocating for that. I'm just advocating that we um, we get streetwise yeah. in the global village. And I think that that is our way out of our current predicament where bad ideas can hijack brains. I mean, the idea doesn't know that it's bad. You know, a good idea and a bad idea are can be equally as infectious um, they're, they're not they're not little creatures that have a you know bad yeah. designs on the human brain they're, they're they're just they're just memes in the sort of Richard Dawkins coinage of the way and they're just multiplying throughout our minds and in what in, in, in culture. I mean, if you, if you imagine that everything we describe as culture is the meme world, it's the idea space, you know, everything from novels to art to fashion to uh, you know, everything that uh, we call culture is full of ideas that are travelling between minds. And some of them, like sort of f- fashions in music or fashions in, in clothing, will become global. You know, why are flares in one year and not the next year, or you know, goatees or whatever it might be, and or lockdown hair? Um, yeah, these, these are just sort of ideas that spread from mind to mind, and I think that they are happening globally and they're happening far faster just because the internet is has become the central nervous system of the meme world, it's connected us all so so that you know, an idea can get get several times around the globe in the, in, in the morning. So I think that we don't have... Well, we have a bicameral brain in two hemispheres, but it's not the same thing. But I think we've basically got to build ourselves a kind of equivalent of um, a two-brain system so that we don't allow ourselves to get convinced of things that may not be true... So So do
1: you think it's uh, maintaining a level of curiosity? So when you have something presented to you, rather than just accepting it, maybe you explore it before you decide that's what you're buying into?
0: Yes. Yes. I think you've got to be humble in the face of new information. And I think that One thing we mustn't do is narrativise it. And I know this sounds funny from the point of view of just having written a novel, which is all about narrative. But I think that what narrative does is it's a seductive explanation rather than a factual explanation. And what I really hate is the kind of journalism which will begin with a story, you know, little Joe is walking along the streets in um, flood-hit capital city of X. Uh, You know, he doesn't know when the next time he'll have fresh food is, and he goes on and on like this. And I think it's a way of making um, these sort of human tragedies or whatever the story may be uh, resonate more with people, but... I think that it's taken over to the point where what we need to know is how many people are in this situation, uh, what is the actual damage, what is being done about it. You, know, you want you want the facts on the ground. And I think that this this narrativizing of um, truth, of, of journalism, I think is really pernicious, because a good story can win out over a boring bunch of graphs and statistics and... Um, a lot of the time you have to say, well, we don't really know. You know, it might be this, it might be that. There's evidence that's conflicting. But on balance, it may well be that this is the way to go. And quite often you have to make decisions, especially if you're fighting a pandemic. You have to make decisions on incomplete evidence. You can't just wait until you're 100% sure what the case is. So you have to take the best evidence to hand. And it's very easy to criticise when people with better evidence, might have had hindsight. But you have to make decisions on incomplete data all the time. Um, and you have to be flexible so that when more and better data comes in, you're not stuck in your rut because of some loyalty to some political tribe or whatever it may be, that you don't switch your opinion immediately to fit, to fit the the new evidence, which is hopefully a better reflection of how right. reality actually is. Um, so we need to sort of develop these sort of mental... Um, not tricks, but mental methodologies that protect us from being infected by these storytelling memes. I think storytelling memes are infectious for the reasons I explained earlier. And again, in the book, I kind of talk about this because... I sort of, I posit at one point that maybe this is what consciousness is, is consciousness is the kind of internal story that we tell ourselves about who we are. So we have, we're we're a body that has senses. So we have information coming in through our eyes, ears, our sense of touch. We have sort of internal perception of our state of hunger or whatever, and we tell an internally consistent story about who we are and what we are and what kind of character we are. So I almost think we kind of bring ourselves into being through narrative sometimes. And people get very, very um, attached to their narrative. You know, pretty much everyone in their own narrative is the hero of the narrative. You know, no no one wants to be the kind of useless... Yeah, villain of the piece. Maybe, well, maybe they do. Maybe <laughs> they do. Maybe some people do. I don't know. But I think we kind of narrativeize our failures to turn them into successes, um, and vice versa. You know, sometimes we kind of are very critical with ourselves when perhaps we we needn't be. But I think it's 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 it, it, it's again, um, it's taking a bunch of information and trying to look for a pattern that has explanatory power. And that pattern may or may not actually reflect the totality of that information, but it may give us a handle on understanding it somehow. So we come up with languages and narratives in order to explain. And again, I, I, I do this by deconstructing what those language languages are on the page in order to sort of play with the form. So again, another example would be Um, when Jack, Harriet and Nixon are sort of battling the first wave of of what they think of as the grid. Um, They're sort of throwing ideas against other ideas in idea space. And so it gave me an opportunity to play with the the form of, say, a, a punk rock flyer or a, um, you know, a needlework embroidery sampler or a bit of Bauhaus typography or, or whatever it might be. But it also allowed me to play with the words on the page. So Jack, for example, takes out punctuation. And so all of a sudden the characters can, they don't, there's, if you take out punctuation, there's no speech marks. And so speech marks are the kind of barrier That your characters cannot hear beyond. Your characters cannot hear your omniscient narration. They can only hear what other people are saying within those speech marks. You take them out and all of a sudden your characters have access to the internal dialogue that I, the omniscient narrator, are giving you, the reader, explaining the internal processes of our characters. So it would be a bit like sort of having access to God's mind, if you like, and you can see into the motivations of the people around you and have a bigger picture of what's going on. So the characters in that uh, sequence begin to notice this. They, they, they kind of bleed out into the, the book and the book's narrative. And then Jack takes away capital letters, and capital letters are, are used for naming so all of a sudden, the characters begin to lose their sense of self. So they are sort of spread out into the, uh, the surrounding meme world yeah. of the book, if you like. So they become they become almost aware that they occupy this vessel, which has three-dimensional space called a book. <laughs> or if you're reading it on an iPad, you know, it's made of metal and silicon order. whatever. Um, so... Again, I'm using sort of analogies within, within analogies in the same way that I use the Ascension story as a, as a sort of mirror to the entire book itself. Um, so I play with the characters being aware that they're characters. And then in, the f- in, in, a, in a much later scene that I sort of allude to uh, in that scene I've just described, but in a much later scene in book three... Where our characters, our D-men, finally, finally achieve some kind of physical expression, and of course, this is when they've um, appeared, they've been received on some alien world throughout through, through the processes of the transmission of the grid. This is again is massive spoilers, <laughs> so apologies for those who haven't read the book. Um, is that they, 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 um, they, you know, they're like Dana and um, the rest of the human race. They. They kind of grow a body using whatever the form is available on the planet that they find themselves on. And I do too. So I am there. Me, Ryan Hughes, the author, is describing myself being in my book with my my mimetic creations, which are the kind of zeitgeists of humanity, uh, given physical form at last. (laughs) But physical form within the physical form of the novel. Yeah. So it's actually fictional. So I'm kind of, I'm playing this kind of meta game uh, the whole way through of, of um, it's the modernist game of saying, if I had to define one of the major threads of modernism and one of probably the things that most interests me in art of any form, it's the way that modernism deals with the idea that here's a painting and it's a picture of something, but it's also a thing in and of itself, it's canvas and paint and pigment. So it's it's a representation and it's it, it's a, sorry, I'll put that another way. It's a it's a symbol and it's uh, it, it, <laughs> i'm saying this all wrong it's it's the symbol and what the symbol right. symbolizes both at the same time and language is this you know my mouth opens words come out these are just on one level oscillations of air that make your ear oscillate and you reconstruct the sounds that i'm making but the sounds that i'm making uh are just another carrier for the meaning i'm imbuing them with so if i was talking in french i could be saying exactly the same thing in french the content of what i would be saying would be the same but the form would change so the form and what the form is expressing are independent to a greater or a lesser degree and i think that you can play with these in art to get some really interesting effects Uh, You know, you can play against the form or with the form. Um, I mean, there's there's a sort of this was summed up for me by a graphic design T-shirt that I saw that um, it said Helvetica, and I'm I'm sure you're familiar with Helvetica. You know, it's like the most um, functional, sort of faceless, sort of corporate font that you could possibly design. Um, And because of that, it kind because it tried to be characterless, it ended up by having a character almost, you know, it's very hard to say nothing. Uh, Anyway, this this T-shirt with Helvetica on was actually written in a Gothic black letter, so a sort of Germanic, sort of like 17th century Gothic black letter. So you're saying one thing in a completely different language and you get this interplay between the two. So the way that you say something can completely undermine and contradict or add to what you are actually saying. So, again, bringing it full circle to the form of, of XX, the novel, the reason I used different fonts and different ways of laying it out on the page was to emphasise the fact that the form in which the message comes can have as much meaning imbued in it as the message right. itself. You don't have to read something on a Kindle that can flow into any vessel and it's it's... It's vessel agnostic. You can use the form that the uh, the story um, is expressed through just as much as you can the the, the content. It's the yeah. You know, it, it's like I say. It's the modernist idea of foregrounding the surface of the work just as much as the content of oh, work.
1: Absolutely. This is why sense. one of the reasons I loved it. as I, Everything about it was uh, completely in my wheelhouse. Uh, look, I, there's so much I want to ask you, but I don't want to keep you for too much longer. I just had um, the uh, the QR, which which we kind of spoke about on on Twitter. <laughs> when I looked in the the book and the QR was there, and my first reaction was, ah, oh, that's pretty cool. And then I was like, wait a minute. And then I clicked on it. And then it opened up... Uh, all this music, did, when did that uh, oh, come yes. into the process? Did you just, because I know you wrote the review and then the album was made, which seems like a good way to make sure that you get good reviews, doesn't it? Just do the review first. But the uh, <laughs> when, when did you decide that there was yeah. going to be a, a musical component to it that people could could find?
0: Well, it, it, it got to the point where it would have been, it would have been crazy not to do it. And, and so I wrote the review and for, the, for the, uh, probably a bit of background information is required here, is that um, as part, in part of the novel, as a signal was received, this isn't a massive spoiler because it's on the back cover of the book, but a signal was received from out there somewhere and it gets leaked onto the internet so and people start making things with it. They make um, sculpture, they make art, they make music. And so I wrote this review as part of the kind of um, uh, this sort of scrapbooky approach to adding different layouts and different um, you know emails um, bits of art um, magazine articles and um, I added a review from, in, you know, from a sort of fairly pretentious music magazine reviewing this fantastic album that had been made from this extraterrestrial signal. So having written it, I then was getting to the point where we were fairly close to press day, and it suddenly occurred to me that I knew people through designing record sleeves for however many years I've been signing record sleeves. I knew people who I could right. commission to make this. You know, and as soon as I thought of this idea, I thought, it's it's got to happen, it's got to happen. So I knew what I thought, I knew what I wanted it to sound like and so I kind of briefed, Uh, I got two people to do it. DJ Food, who is very much a kind of, um, you can listen to a lot of his stuff on Bandcamp and I would recommend you do. A very uh, sort of hands-on producer, um, creator in a very... um, sort of programming kind of approach rather than sort of live performance kind of approach, which, which I'm not sort of saying in any detrimental way. Yeah. We're very skilled in that uh, way. Uh, and then uh, my sister, Sarah Hughes, who's a um, classically trained pianist. And I thought, if I put these two together, what am I going to get? So Sarah came up with all this raw material and Kev sort of basically looped it and edited it and chopped it about. So you had these... Sort of very sort of human melancholy piano elements that then sort of looped away into these sort of ethereal, otherworldly, alien sort of elements. And I wanted that kind. I didn't want it to be too harsh-edged and unlistenable and discordant. So I wanted to have some call back to something that we might find familiar to listen to as human beings. But then, I but I also wanted it to have that sort of alien, weird, um, unusual edge to it. So that's why I thought that they would make a good collaboration. So I put the two of them together, and they just sent files back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and the album was the result. And I think it's absolutely perfect. You know, they're, they're, they're brilliant. The the other... Here's the really left-field thing that happened while that was going on, is that uh, Saren Hughes, my sister, had sent me um, some years ago some little little snippets of compositions that she'd made and I was going through old sound files and trying to dig these out just sort of searching for sound files on my computer and I came across my late father reading some of his poetry that was recorded he passed away about two years ago and sort of a matter of months before we passed away just almost incidentally my brother-in-law recorded him on his i on his iphone so it wasn't in a studio or anything like that reading some of his poetry and i came across this sound file and it and it was i mean it was it, you can imagine it's you know it's a, quite an emotional right. thing to listen to but the subject of this of this poetry was reincarnation and sort of coming back around again. And it so fitted the part three, the, the kind of transcendental last bit of the novel. It was absolutely perfect thematically for that and for what the signal turns out to be in the end. Um, and I said to my sister, I said, is this really... Slightly exploitative and weird, and she goes, "No, let's let's. This is perfect. We'll use this." And so, in yeah. the longer piece, which is about twenty minutes, the sort of side two, if you like, of of the album. Um, about halfway through, you got yeah. my dad reading this 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 poem, which which is, you know, I think I think he would approve. I like to think he'd approve. You know, I, I think he'd not really know what to make of what we've done with it. But it was just one of those. Bizarre coming together's of finding this old sound file and having this project to hand to which it was was a perfect match. Um, but every time I listen to it, I know it's coming. I know it's coming. But every time it gets to the bit where he starts talking, oh, it's just
1: yeah, it's oh. it's beautiful
0: it's
1: it's really really kind of yeah and i don't think it 's exploitive at all because it's it's you know it 's you with your family as well you know it's uh it's it's taking his art and obviously uh you know you you 've got your side of things your sister's uh, a, a trained uh, uh classical pianist you know that's kind of uh giving back to him because he must have been an influence and uh and encouraged you to explore these aspects that you are now so it it once again it's a bit of a loop don't you think
0: yeah yes in a way it is i mean my dad actually did read the book because i had you know i explained earlier how i did yeah. sort of print on demand physical copies as i was um going through it and he read one of the earlier ones and i said i said what did you think and he said I don't know what I thought. (laughs) No, that was was kind of all I got out of him, pretty much. You know, he he was sort of um, not more more forthcoming than that, really.
1: That's the generation, though, isn't it?
0: Yeah. It's very much his... Yeah, it's very much my dad. (laughs) But anyway... Oh, yes. He did, he, did, he did read it.
1: I feel like that's my mum as well. Like, my mum is, you know, I know that she loves me dearly and uh, she very much, from a very young age, encouraged me to go in the direction that I've gone. And even at times when I've thought, ah, maybe I do want to become an accountant, she'd be like, what are you doing? No, this is, this is the way you want to go. But mm. sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll put on a show of some sort and then afterwards... You know, what did you think? Ah, yeah. Excellent. (laughs) No, I really want to deconstruct these ideas.
0: Well, yeah... Well, I'm I'm torn between imagining that they're utterly bemused by this and they just really don't have a handle on this at all, and the sneaking suspicion suspicion that they actually don't like it. I think it's the former more than the latter. I mean, you know, you get the support and the encouragement in a in a in a much more sort of generally applied sense, but but I, I think that yeah, a lot of what I do, I think. It's, it's a mystery to. Right. It was a mystery to my dad. I think. I think. Yeah, I think he knew what it was. It, what it was that I was doing, but yeah, the, the 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 ins and outs of it, the details of it. Um. Yeah, I think it was a bit of a mystery. Right. I would tell him anyway. I would just bring him up to speed on everything. You know, whether he was interested or not, yeah, I would tell him. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I think they are. It's like I'm pretty much convinced that when mum sees me do a a stand-up comedy show, it's fine. Do you know what I mean? It's fine, but there must be a part of her that thinks, oh, there he is up on stage telling jokes, whatever, you know. It's like I've had to put up with that raising him, (laughs) you know. But when I did – a couple of years ago, I uh, did a one-person play that was in three parts, and I was trying to use – uh, audio in different ways than you would normally get. Cause I find I'd, I'd hit a point with stand up It's, it's a monotone, even if it's really good, it's still someone just talking into nice. a microphone. So I was trying to use music the way you would use it in uh, a TV series or a movie. And I was using uh, pre-recorded bits of audio uh, to just kind of keep the audience a little bit off balance. And also, uh, I wanted to work in ambiguity, which you kinda it's hard to do in stand up. In stand up it has to be and here's the joke and that's the definitive point that we're getting to and therefore we laugh at that. But I wanted to work in the ambiguous side of things. So anyway, it ended up being uh, you know, what I would think was a little bit more bizarre for uh, a mainstream audience and I reckon mum was fucking all over it she was like yes this is why I encouraged you to do stuff <laughs> so nah <laughs> nah mum's fine <laughs> my uh my mum is um you know mum had me when she was 19 single parent in 1972 in in Australia and she's still you know an old lefty who's furious at all the right things and, you know, I get text messages <laughs> with, uh, you know, anger about this and that. But uh, uh, no, no, she's fine with all of that yeah. kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, see, my parents never swear. And, um, you know, w- w- when you've written a novel that's got not only – it's got a bit of profanity in a few <laughs> yes. oblique sex scenes in – you kind of are wondering what kind of response you're going to get. Well, I don't know what this generation. says about me, but I'd feel much anyway. more
1: comfortable <laughs> dropping a swear word in front of my mum than writing a sex scene in a book. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Well, there's, there's, um, I kind of allude to that a bit with yeah. um, Harriet's character because Harriet's sort of goes to a, a sort of rough school and learns to sort of graduate, well, she, she graduates with a sort of first-class honours <laughs> in swearing, uh, but never but never ever swears at home. Um, so I kind of used her as the, uh, to sort of, for that idea that, you know, you have, um, there's a name for it, actually. I can't remember what it is. It's sort of, you know, it's where you switch between certain registers depending on the context that you're talking in. <clears throat> So, you know, yeah. in order to fit in at school, Harriet um, uses one kind of language, but in order to fit in at home, she uses quite a different.
1: Yeah, yeah. Language. I, I thought that was I, interesting. Once again, like, what a great character! I was totally into uh, that that little that little team. It, it, so, when it when it gets to the thriller aspects mm. of the story, you do feel anxious for for all three of them. Uh, m- uh, moving forward, once again, trying to speak obliquely without giving anything away. Um, uh- much <laughs> oh. away.
0: <laughs> Well, I mean, one of the um, one of the friends who read it earlier on um, was uh, um, Kieran Gillen, comic uh, writer, and um, Kieran said to me, he said, <laughs> one of the first things he said was, he said, "I'd have killed Nixon." And I just said, well, that's yeah.
1: the difference between you and me, Kieran. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, poor
0: Nixon. You don't want that to happen. To- <laughs> I, 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 it would have not have served a purpose. Um, it, it, it would have undercut yes. what happens later without giving too much away. So, I, you know, you, you kind of pull your punch in one scene in order to deliver a yeah. heavier punch in another scene. It, it's... Um, Contrast oh yeah, I, I, I also again. think
1: uh, you know the, think. one of the most exciting parts of uh, the story is once again towards the end on the moon, and uh, one of the characters sneaking about and how manages to make you know something happen, and it's it's like a it's like a fight in a fifth dimensional person coming in and fighting in three dimensions for a moment, and that's such a thrilling moment in the book what yeah uh yeah so uh, i thought you might just find this a little bit interesting but i can draw a line from being a young boy to this moment which is mum showed me i think maybe when i was 11 or 12 uh dennis potter's the singing detective which was mind-blowing for me as a kid i'd never seen anything like it before and was a real sort of uh You know, I think if you went back and kind of read my short stories then, there was this first desire to try and do something that was a a little bit more ambitious, I get. I'm I'm sure they're awful, but (laughs) Dennis Potter's The Singing Detective was such a (laughs) a huge kind of TV book movie experience for me. And then years later, I read a bio of Grant Morrison where it described them as a Scottish Dennis Potter which made me go and find Animal Man and Doom Patrol and then it was his quote at, oh. at their quote for your book which made me then oh yeah I like Ryan Hughes stuff I will uh, I'll get the book and then that's how we kind of got here and I wonder is there anyone from your youth that you can kind of uh, look back on and say, I know we've kind of talked about Arthur C. Clarke as uh, and uh, two thousand one etc. as a as a potential starting point.
0: Yeah. Um. Oh. Yeah. Where, where Where do you trace it back to zero? I think is the question. And sort of, uh, I would say that. Well, here, here we go. Three three things. I would say that probably one of the earliest. Um, things that really stuck in my mind and I knew that there was something weird and meta going on here and I couldn't really work out what it was. Right. It was Monty Python and it wasn't so much that I thought that it was laugh out loud funny. It was the way that they would pretend that the episode had ended and then this was whatever program was coming next, but of course it was John Cleese and co. Pretending that it was another episode. And um, it was the way that in I forget which of the movies the supporting title sort of ends, uh, sort of um, sort of invades the main uh, film and things like that. The way that um, they have the subtitles over the subtitles at the beginning of um, the Meaning of Life. I think I'm going to have to go back and and look at all these again. But again, it's, it's the way that they kind of layer the stories with um, an awareness of the manner in which the stories are being told, and then they play against that for effect. So Monty Python, the TV show, was kind of a TV show that was aware that it was a TV show, and so they would mess with the format of the TV show in order to make a gag. And I remember that sort of really tickling some part of my brain. And then... Uh, so it's Monty Python. And then Peter Saville, in the way that he would appropriate a lot of... Again, this is how I sort of came to um, sort of early modern um, design and art, was through seeing it on record sleeves. I think this is true of a lot of people of that kind of age, is that you, you, know, you, you sort of... You see, you see the quoted um, pop culture version of something before you come across the thing that it is quoting, Um, You know, pop culture is quite often the conduit through which ideas from other realms reach us, especially when we're young. Uh, So, you know, we we will hear about things through music or fashion or whatever, and then later on realise, ah, right, that's where that was stolen from. So, of course, sort of Peter Sandel stole quite blatantly um a lot a lot of his most famous work so that gets a reference in xx in the fact that i referenced the cover of unknown pleasures yep. with the pulsar um uh, trace and again i sort of regurgitate that through um the character of nadine's pop culture reference so it's not it's kind of a pink version of that so it's it's been in the same way that a few years ago there were sort of um women's pink t-shirts with iron maiden (laughs) written on in glitter you know it's that way that you take you know it's again it's like that helvetica (laughs) t-shirt set in a gothic black letter it's the you know the, the heavy metal rock band name but in glitter on a pink shirt you know and What what I like about that instance is that you don't have to have done a degree in semiotics to understand what is going on there. Everyone understands the language in which you were talking and the way that you're also undermining it and playing against it at the same time. So that that pink Iron Maiden or uh, whatever it was, was it Iron Maiden? I think it was Iron Maiden shirt. It's doing a similar thing that Monty Python are doing. And uh, the third one, of course, is Alan Moore, because I think, you know, what was what Alan Moore was doing in Watchmen and which, in retrospect, 90% of people, maybe 99% of people, missed, was the way that he was using the history of comics and the history of the superhero to sort of retell the tropes of the superhero, using comics in a way that was aware that these were comics. So you have the Black Traitor yeah. story within the story, which is... I guess I mean it wasn't an overt inspiration for uh, ascension, but now I come to think about it, it's a kind of similar conceit. Um, but it was that it, it was that it was being aware of the formal aspects of the way that you are expressing yourself, as well as being aware of what you are expressing. And Monty Python, uh, Peter Savile and Alan Moore all did that at a very Early age in my formative brain, um, you know, Watchman is like 35 oh, years crazy, ago or right? now, it's crazy, right? Yeah, it's incredible, uh,
1: yeah, no, I and, can't and that, that burst of creative energy from him wonder. because I found him through uh, Swamp Thing. Uh, I remember even just looking at the covers. Yes. I wasn't really a horror comic kind of guy, but looking at the covers and they were so strange and, uh, you know, all that Toddleban and Bissett uh, artwork and then going inside and, the, the, you know, that was one of the first times, once again, where you're like, whoa, what is what is happening with this story? Mm. Uh, but the, the one that seems to slip through the cracks a little bit is due to all of those rights was... Uh, Marvel Man, or Miracle Man, as it was called. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, I always felt like, in, in many ways, yeah. I felt like that was his kind of last statement on superhero stories as well.
0: Yeah. No, I think I reread it when, it, 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 like you say, it was tied up with rights forever, and it finally came out from Marvel a couple of years ago, and I read it for the first time since I'd read it yeah. piecemeal in Warrior magazine in black and white when I was, uh, you know, I don't know, a young teenager. I can't remember how long ago. It was a long time ago. And um, so it was the first time I'd read it. And of course, when it came out at piecemeal, you know, there there was, there was was years over which I read that story because of the magazines that were, that were, it was being published in went bust and it then got picked up by another publisher and so on. So I'd never actually sat down, and and sort of read the entire thing from beginning to end in in one or two sittings. Yeah. It is really powerful, and he lays the groundwork very early on for that final heart rending scene where Marvel Man has to deal with um, is it yeah, Kid it. Nasty Man or whatever it is. I can't remember the name of the character. I mean, and the way he takes these very very you know I'm, I'm saying Kid Nasty Man. It just sounds. Stupid, But the way that they're sort of reimagined and he manages to make this all make sense within this. Yeah, no, I think it was a stained work of br- brilliant imagination. Um, and I think some of his later work gets a bit self-referential. And it's like having set out this innovative groundwork, he kind of retreated from it a bit Um. And there might be many, many reasons for that. You know, probably just commercial pressure or the fact that, you know, he was being asked to do work on characters, you know, like third-rate image characters that no one can remember. I mean, who could really... Um, Well, to be honest, I've never read the Supreme stuff, but there was a lot of other stuff where I just thought, you know, Alan's not sort of... He was being wasted on this to some degree. Um, so, no, it's fantastic. I've not read the Neil Gaiman stuff that comes afterwards. So I don't know, because Neil c- carried it on.
1: Yeah, I really like, so there was the the Golden Age, and uh, they were the stories that were set in the world afterwards. So Gaiman does such a great job of, like, there's, um, remember, I think there's a, a throwaway uh, moment in Moore's work about bringing Andy Warhol back and him creating lots of versions of Andy Warhol. So there's a, there's a story that kind of focuses yeah, yeah, yeah. on that. And it's, uh, uh, yeah, I, I really liked where that was going. It was, he, he did a really good job of um, building on what Moore had written without ever sort of, sometimes, you know, a story ends so beautifully you don't want it to be contradicted. So he built on it nicely. And then he just yeah. started the Silver Age with uh, Buckingham. And then once again, I think Eclipse went bust and I think Todd McFarlane bought the characters. And then it, and so it, it's one of those things where I think he's going to come back to it because I think he was going to do the Silver Age and then he was going to finish with the Dark Ages with the character. But mm. who knows? It's one of those things where I, I think, what was it? Was it? Three and a half years between issue twenty six and twenty seven of planetary and it just it just gets to a point where you yeah. let it go and then if it turns up you're you're wrapped but in the meantime but uh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's weird. It's weird that these these projects do extend over so many years, um, and yet still have. This is what amazed me about rereading it: is that it still had an amazing cohesion, and threads that have been laid down in really early episodes were essential and and tied together. You know, at the at the finale, um, which you know, which I just find you know just an astonishing act of application and and you know so many other. Stories would have just gone off the rails with those kinds of delays and publishing. Yeah,
1: it's changes. so crazy to look at uh, the, the modern uh, pop culture world and see Alan's influence all the way through it as well. Like to to anonymous with the the Guy Fawkes mask and uh, even yes. the smiley face throughout yes. the '90s seemed to uh, take on more prominence. And his his fingerprints are everywhere, aren't they?
0: Yeah, well, there's there's a, there's a fantastic scene that I remember reading in Warrior, uh, um, and it's sort of an interlude in V Vendetta where V plays oh, yeah. a tune on the piano, and you know this 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 masquerade or something, something masquerade, and it's brilliant. You know, it's just Alan writing lyrics that completely sum up the the the, the, you know, the plot, the thrust of, of, of the uh, um, idea behind V for Vendetta, and then I remember what sort of got me was that at the end he just closes the piano lid and walks off, and I think there's a frame with just the sort of yeah. piano and no V uh, in the piano in the in the shot, and I think that was the first time that I realised that you could use absences um, if you've established a presence. You can then um, show an absence, and people will know what is missing from the picture. And that can, be, and that's a really, it's a really interesting and sort of minimalist and modernist idea: is that you can speak very loudly by saying right. nothing. In fact, you're saying less than nothing because you're, you know, you've, you've got a hole on the page, you know, an absence on the page. Um, and there was a couple of times in sort of XX where I tried, I tried sort of similar things. There's, there's, a, there's, there's a surrealist painting by Magritte where it's got a man reading a newspaper in the top left-hand corner. And then um, the other five frames, uh, which in retrospect are like a Watchman six-panel grid, weirdly, but painted in 1930-something. Uh, the other five frames are the same picture, but the man isn't there. So you get this sense of an extended period of time where the man has gone right. off and left the room, and so you it, it, what what is brought to your mind is the idea that this figure you know like if you if you if he, if he if he if he wasn't if there was just one extra panel and he wasn't in that one extra panel you'd think oh he's left, but because there's five of them, you think that he's off <laughs> doing quite a lot of stuff <laughs> you know, we we don't really know how many hours or days that sort of absence goes on for but it obviously goes on for five panels which is longer than one panel and so it's an extended absence that really gets you to focus on what this absent what what he might be doing it's this character that isn't even drawn in those five panels so again it's that sort of idea that and, and i mentioned in xx a couple of times that there are a sort of alien races that communicate with silences. The gaps between the noises that they make are where the information lies and how long that silence is conveys some meaning. I just thought that... and, 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 And I have my... Uh, in, in one of the Dana debrief transcripts, this crops up again this idea that intentional absences um can communicate information that nothing means nothing uh when I say nothing means nothing i I mean that sort of it's very hard to have anything that is meaningless but yeah. I also mean that nothing means- no, means something um uh, is is that uh, she says that she says I'm beginning to realise that absences can have meaning too, and Gabe, who's the, the the NASA boffin who's sort of debriefing her, says, "Yep, I realised that the first time I was stood up."
1: <laughs> oh, that's so good. And the and also in in those transcripts we have things blocked out as well, like parts of the.
0: Yes. Redacted transcripts. Yeah. Yeah. So you, as the viewer sort of fill in, you know, you know, you know what's there. You know, there's enough context for you to fill in that gap. But I love that idea. There's there's a there's there's a there's a a, I remember just someone describing this and I'm not sure whether it's it was a scene in a novel or it's a real thing that someone was describing. But the description was of one of those folding um sort of room divider panel things where you get three images and across these three images, there are birds flying in my imagination it's like um it, it it's like sort of an old chinese style of of sort of you know like a kind of hokusai style of right. floating world kind of imagery and in the third panel there's everyone thinks that there's a bird that has flown off the edge of the page. And if there was a fourth panel, you would see this extra bird. Now, I can remember reading a a written description of this and trying to imagine what this was like, that as an artist, you could create... You could extend the borders of the picture outside of the frame to the point where your viewer was convinced that there was a bird there. (laughs) If we added an extra panel, there there would be this bird. Now, I have no idea whether this really exists or not, or whether it was just a uh, a literary conceit that was... Um, I can't even remember what story it was in. It may have been like an Agatha Christie... I honestly can't remember. Maybe maybe one of your listeners can no find out. But again, it's, 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 it, it brings us sort of full circle to this sort of modernist idea of the window on the world, but also the material aspects of the of the language and the, and the paper and the canvas um, and the, the words that you are saying also being a thing in and of themselves and, and how you can switch switch the reader's attention between these two things and use them to support each other and tell a story and, and bring out different aspects of the narrative yeah, process in interesting that's, ways.
1: It, well, it, it has to, uh, even if it's just, uh, an idea of the uh, of the bird it s- somehow exists, doesn't it? Like uh, j- even just as a uh, as a as a thought, that kind of gives it so uh, a level of substance, and that's kind of what everything that goes on in your whole book. There's all these uh, myriad ideas and thoughts, and uh, and it's and it's a thrilling story as well. Like it's a real page turner, and it's and and it's and it's this. Look at this. How great is it? I love it so much. Um, I've got the most important question I'm going to ask you to to leave you with is, um, does Comic Sans get a bad rap? Because people get so angry about it.
0: Um, (laughs) Technically,
1: technically it's not a
0: good font. Um, It's based on Dave Gibbons' Watchmen hand lettering, believe it or not. So, I'm well, I remember having this conversation with Dave and when he found out and he he was sort of like, (laughs) you know, there was a compliment or not. It's like a bad version of Dave's writing and and Dave doesn't have lowercase in his, so it, it does sort of extrapolate quite a lot from his model. Um it, it it yeah, I don't know. It's one of those it, there was obviously a need which it filled. And I think that's that's in, that's that's an interesting point from a sort of cultural point of view. It's a bit like going back to the idea of ideas that can travel across the world. I think sometimes an idea's time will come. I mean, there's a quote that I use in XX, um which is uh Victor Hugo, I think, which says, Nothing can beat an idea whose time has come. And I think Comic Sans would not have been popular if it hadn't fulfilled a need so perfectly that, that millions of people obviously had. Now, yeah, you know, which brings us full circle to the, the way that sort of ideas and memes travel through idea space and through culture. And, you know, just around the corner is probably another idea that's, Going to infect us all, whether we like it or not, whether we have a forebrain or a hind brain, and whether we know how to deal with it or not, it's going to, you know, it's going to affect politics. It's going to affect sort of interpersonal attitudes, for better or worse, and we've got to develop ways of dealing with these infectious ideas. Um, and sorting the good from common the
1: sense. I bad. That's the first time I ever knew people to be angry about a font. <laughs> and, <laughs> I think... Um, it kills me that it's based on Dave Gibbons, whose work I love so much.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it... it uh, I think that's... A, it, it's... That's the thing about pop culture is that, I mean, I I design a lot of fonts and you can spend months and months on a font that really doesn't get used very often. You know, it, it might be, as far as I'm concerned, sort of, you know, reasonably beautifully made and put together and technically competent, but if it doesn't fulfil a need, no-one will use it. Whereas there are other fonts where I think no-one's going to use this, and it just sells and sells and sells, and I'll see it going by on right. the side of a bus. Like, like, like the WandaVision logo is a, is a font of mine called Armstrong. Right. And so every time I see a WandaVision poster or around um, here in London, they're on the side of buses at the moment. It's like, oh, right, okay one of my fonts that someone's found useful so they speak a, they you know they have a certain atmosphere and a certain thing that they are communicating and if it's in a font turns out to be really popular it's obviously saying something that people want to say and if some if another font doesn't is you know nobody wants to say whatever it is that that font is saying obviously a lot of people wanted to say whatever it is that Comic Sans says, which is probably like, Hey, I'm a bit friendly, I'm approachable, you know, I'm yeah. I'm unthreatening. I'm I, I'm an I'm an email that is actually giving yeah. you the sack. But if I set it in Comic Sans, it's gonna be so much more Just
1: fun. Just taking the edge off. That's all I'm trying to do here. Yeah. Um, and my final yeah. question for you is uh if if XX was turned into another format. And, and to me, this, it feels very much like Watchmen. You know, Watchmen's perfect as a, as a graphic novel. XX feels perfect as, as a book. But it, it, it feels quite cinematic in lots of places. And if you had a choice, would you prefer to see it as a big screen movie or would you like to see it as, a, as an HBO TV series?
0: I think that um, we've got to the point where long-form storytelling in a HBO miniseries style of format um, is has the production values of, of a lot of first-rate movies. So I think long gone are the days where the budgets were so different that there was a there was a degree of professionalism that only showed itself in top-flight movies. I think that. Um, so many top-flight TV shows um, are impeccably done these days. But I think that the long format gives you more room to get into the philosophical digressions, which are the meat of XX. So I think that that would be far the be- far better way to go. I think that if you made a short, even if it was a two-hour movie, you would have to leave so much of what the book is about out and focus yeah. on getting from A to B. So it would be it would it would be the narrative backbone of the movie but sorry of, of the book but um so much of what xX is about is 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 in addition to that um, yeah. narrative spine and and I fear that uh you'd have to strip of a lot of it away. So I would go for the long Maybe have Ascension as,
1: a, as an animated part of the story. Maybe it would work in that kind of way.
0: I saw it as a black and white sort of Twilight Zone style interlude. So, um, so in every episode you get like this little um, snippet yeah, maybe five, ten minutes oh, of, so of good. ascension.
1: I love it. I love it so much. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the trick the the trick the trick would be finding um uh analogues that you could I mean, obviously the things like the um transcripts would just be right. straight interview tapes. Or the news blogs that you that are designed to look like uh, websites would be cutting yeah. to a news reporter. I mean, that is that has been done so often that it's a it's a cliche. Um, you might have to find um, more interesting ways of doing it. But I think that I think that audiences now are pretty sophisticated in the way that they can understand flash forwards, flashbacks, um, voiceovers. Um, sort of interpolated material that might be in a different style, you know, like you say, animated or, or what have you. I think that audiences now are pretty sophisticated consumers and long gone are the days where if you were going to have a flashback, the, the image would kind of go all wavy like this yeah. and it would go... Yeah. You know, or, and then it would flag up, five years ago today... Um, or you would have like a news headline um, and the, the the newspaper would spin out from the centre. The, 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 the
1: wavy flashback went, uh, was done as soon as they did it in the young ones, right? <laughs> and they did it physically. Oh, yeah, they did. They kind of,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, again, again the, these kind of forms are kind of ripe to be played with. As soon as I start thinking about that waviness, I'm thinking there must be a way to use that. And undermine it, but comment on it, but then build upon right. it all at the same time. You know, it's it's it, it's just another letter in the alphabet of human communication that we all speak um, that can be redesigned and rethought, just as any other. So yeah. We well, well,
1: I. Uh... It, just even that makes me go well, i can't wait to see what you do next i think you wrote on twitter there's there's a page in here that gives a hint at what's coming next with did is did i read that correctly i did what, what do you mind telling me what that page was again or do you want me to uh, or should i just wait you know what i'll just wait uh, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being greedy with excitement. Um, I've got the trade to uh, check out now, knowing that you've uh, made some little changes here and there as well
0: yeah they're they're, they're they're minor additions i don't want anyone to go out and buy another copy thinking that the the vast story arc is going to curve off in a brand new direction and
1: oh no jax's you know, got superpowers like, <laughs> i've rewritten
0: the last season of game <laughs> of thrones it's not going to be that um, no there's there's a clue in there there there's, there's um, in the Ascension story There's a because it was published in the late 50s. Mm. There's an old advert in the Ascension story. That advert is a clue to the next novel, which is coming out in I'm probably not allowed to say actually, but soonish, soonish at some point. Um, and uh. It's... I won't say too much about the next one. It's not a sequel. It's got no connection with XX whatsoever. Um, It just seemed like a kind of metafictional way of, um, again, talking about the book as it exists in the wider world and things being vessels and objects at the same time. So it was another... It was just me messing with that. Metafictional yeah. level again. So yes, there is a clue in there, and um, for those of us who for those who follow that clue. Um, it'll become apparent when the next novel comes out what the... Okay, well, that's great. Around. I honestly
1: can't wait. Uh, the uh, where, where can people find your work at, like the book they can find at bookstores, et cetera? But do you have uh, a site that you would prefer people to go and find uh, your topography and uh, all your other work?
0: Yeah, my my website is, is ryanhughes.com or devicefonts.co.uk. Um, and the website is in the process of being redesigned at the moment so the website as it stands now this being uh, March 2021 um, has not been updated probably in about right. three or four years maybe longer so it's 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 got a lot of my design work illustration work comic strip work up there um, but um, there, there will be a new website launching in the next month or so. Um, if I (laughs) pull my finger up, um, so you can go and look there. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and that's
1: probably it. We can't have everyone following you everywhere. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I I really appreciate this. I, I, I love the book so much and, uh, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, well, uh, discussing it with uh, my uh, listeners and people who are, who have read it as well. And I can't wait to see what comes up next.
0: Well, thank you very much. And I will recommend Big Squid <laughs> to everyone I know as well. So, uh...
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Fantastic, right? Like, what a great guy. I can't thank Ryan Hughes enough for his generosity and time. I think he is clearly at the top of any list for who would you like to have at a dinner party? Actually, I'd have his whole family. His whole family sounds brilliant, don't they? Uh, Make sure when you check the book out to use the QR code inside to find the album, too. The album's really fascinating to listen to. And now that we know there's a piece of his father in it, I think that makes it even more special. As always, if you'd like to promote this podcast through suggesting it to friends or writing great reviews online, that is always appreciated. I'll be back later in the week with our next episode of The Leftovers. And remember to pencil in May 2nd so you can come and see our next live Big Squid show. Let's finish with a quote from Ryan, which sums up his book perfectly. How do you kill a bad idea? You have a better one. Love it. Everything about it. I love it. Until then.